The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Paul, the apostle, was writing and had written this letter to the church in Rome. And he said, I want to write this letter to you because I want the gospel to bear fruit within your midst. I want you uh, to know how to understand yourself, the dynamic that has happened to you at the cross through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand within that how you relate to God, how you relate to one another, and how you relate to the world around you. And so we've been looking, and Paul, in the first uh, three chapters up to uh, verse 20 of chapter 3, Paul uh, wrote and he was saying, you see, man's in a hopeless condition. There's no way for him to save himself. There's no way for him uh, to get to heaven. But something has to happen. And what happened, he began to explain in chapter 3, verse 21, and all the way through chapter 5, he said what happened was that God mercifully sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to take our penalty, uh, to stand in our place, and that we now are justified through him, that we are now right with God, that our sin and debt has been canceled, uh, that it has been fully annihilated, and that we now stand as sons and daughters of the king, uh, that we are now being changed by the power of his spirit uh, into... um, to believers who look more and more like his son. And that process of sanctification goes on. And Paul, and now in chapter 6 and beginning here in chapter 7, begins to answer objections to that. Because what was, what was facing him was this question. Well, if it's all by grace, through faith, in, by, in Christ alone, then why do I need to live a life of piety? Why, why would I want to be righteous in that? Why would I want to obey the law? And Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 15, should we sin that grace may abound? May it never be. But he's answering objections to his teaching uh, about the beauty of the gospel. And you see, we come this morning, and we're going to be looking, especially this week, at the role uh, of the law, of how do we relate to the law. But what an appropriate morning to be looking at it. For as Tim mentioned, this is Reformation Sunday. It's a Sunday within the Christian church. Uh, the protesting or the Protestant Christian church that we celebrate the work of a single monk and the movement of individuals that actually started well before Martin Luther in 1517 with the work of men like John Huss, with Savonarola in Spain, uh, with others who said the church needs reforming. The church has lost the biblical principles. The church has lost the gospel. Uh, And Luther stood And he nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle. And he stood there and he said, we need to return to these things, these truths we need to hold on to. And the truths that he was holding on to are truths that we still celebrate today. And you may go, great, here we head into a history lesson. Well, yeah, we're going to head into a history lesson for just a moment. And it goes something like this. Martin Luther and the Reformation that began and what we are a part of, by the way. Because what he began there was called the Protestant Reformation and the protesting church of which we are still a part of today. And they had these solas that they said, these things that we stand upon. And he said, first and foremost, is sola scriptura, that we stand upon the word of God alone. And it is the word of God uh, that is our guide and direction within this life. It has final authority and say within the life of the believer, not the pope. Uh, Not the church, not any individual, but the word of God, rightly interpreted by the spirit, moving through the word, applying it to our lives, not moving through us uh, to then understand the word, because then I could come up with one interpretation and you could come up with one interpretation, but it's the word that stands above us. He said, sola scriptura, 
You see, at that time, no one understood the Bible because it was in Latin and no one spoke Latin. And Luther and others began to translate the Bible and revival began to break out because people were reading the scriptures in their own language. And they saw it and they heard it for the first time in the vernacular. They heard the words of the gospel and their lives were changed by the power of the, of the Spirit through the scriptures, solo scriptura. And we hold on to it today because today, many churches don't believe it anymore. They believe parts of it. And they would say that the word of God is contained within this book. But if within this book is also contained the words of men, and we get to determine which parts of those, that there's mystery and that there's a myth within this, and we have to demythologize it. We have to take out all those parts that aren't really true, and we just have to come down to the part. And Luther and the Reformers would have said solo scriptura. And then they would have said solo Christo, that it's by Christ alone. That it is only Christ in which we find our salvation. That it's not by works of the law. That it's not by our righteousness. That it's not by anything else. But that it is only in Christ alone. Uh, that we can't pay for indulgences to get somebody to heaven. That it is only through the completed work of Jesus Christ. His work alone. That we find our hope in Him. Christ alone. And that's still important today. For many people, even some who may be here today, believe that it's Christ plus that it's Christ plus a good life, that it's Christ plus something else that we add to it, that there are maybe other ways to get to heaven, and that Christ is the main way. I mean, he'd be the interstate. You'd want to take him. He's the easiest. But there are some meandering ways that you can get there through the mountains. They're a little more dangerous and a little more precarious. But one day, ultimately, everybody ends up in heaven. And the reformers would say, solo Christo, Christ alone. By grace alone, solo gratia. But it's only by God's grace that you merited nothing, Paul would say in the first three chapters of this letter. We merited absolutely nothing. That it is only by the extension of God's grace within the life of the believer. And that's important today because we still fall back onto our works. We go back to a works righteousness. We go back to somehow that we add to this. Somehow it's based upon us. And the reformers and the others would say, no, it's by grace alone through and the vehicle through faith alone, solo fide. That is by faith alone that we believe, that we gain this, that you accept it, you believe it. And some of you are here going, that's too easy. And the answer is, yes, it is. But it is a blood-bought ease. It was purchased at an incredibly high price, a blood-bought salvation for you. But you believe it and you receive it by faith by saying, I believe these things to be true. This is that which I hang my very life on are these truths, and it's by faith alone, not by works, so that no one could boast. And then finally, solo Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. That all of life is lived to the glory of God, no matter what you do, that you live life for the ultimate bringing glory to God the Father. How you relate to one another, how you are within your marriage, that you can ask parents to a student did you worship God today within your studies? Did they approach their studies in a manner that brought glory and honor to the Lord? When you were out last night enjoying yourself, did you party? Did you celebrate? Uh, did you go to the cocktail party? Did you stay at home and watch movies? Were you on your computer this morning? Were you driving your car? Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone within everything. The reformer said these are the things that drove the change that was a catastrophic and cataclysmic change within the world. It was a defining point within time. There were things that happened out of that. I remember hearing my father speak, and he would say, Billy, 
you need to develop a Protestant work ethic. Protestant work ethic, what a preacher dad to say that something like that, a Protestant work ethic, what in the world is that? His ability, you see what happened within Europe at that time was all of these individuals came to faith in Jesus Christ. There was revival happening and they realized, silly day of glory, that all their work was done unto the Lord. And so even the serf who was working on the field, even the slave who was working in the home, they did their work with such passion and such zeal that it amazed all those who were around them. And they said, why are you working so hard? Your hard work isn't going to gain you any more money at the end of the day. And they would say, silly day of gloria. I'm working to the glory of God alone. And I do my work the best that I possibly can to honor and please the one who has given me all things in Christ Jesus. A work ethic, it changed the world. And so we stand today on this day in history, an important day in history, and we come to a passage of Scripture that Luther poured over, that Luther wrestled with, that Luther tried to understand the role of the law within the individuals because what Luther understood prior uh, to his change of heart uh, in his time there in Wittenberg and being a teacher in the theological schools and a monk among monks is he realized this, I obey the law. I do it better than anybody else. I obey the law, but yet I hate God. He's a cruel master. He drives me and drives me and drives me and I can never satisfy him. It's never enough. I beat my body into submission, Luther would have said. And he literally did flogging his body and bleeding in front of God, fasting and praying for days on end. And he looked up and he said, instead of seeing a beautiful, loving God, I see a taskmaster who is never satisfied and will never give me in this life a deep trust of knowing that I'll go to heaven. He wrestled with these passages of Scripture. And some of you may be in that exact same place, that you're wrestling with God, and you're wanting to understand, what does this all look like? We're going to come and look briefly this morning, and next week unpack a little bit further, and the week after that more, about the law within the life of the believer. And as we come this morning, let's ask God to bless this time in his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray now that you would pour out your spirit upon us and that we, we would see very clearly that we would be convicted, that we would be encouraged, that we would celebrate and that we would weep, that we would move through the midst of our affections and we would find them at the end of the day fully tied and bound to Christ. Would you teach us now through your word for your people sit and humbly obey. To Christ be the glory. Amen. Romans chapter 7, first six verses. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for the law. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Amen. So we come to this passage, and Paul, as I said, is trying to rebut, to refute the questions raised in 6.1 and 6.15, which were, if it's all by grace and not by works, and we merit none of this on our own, and we can't lose this salvation, for it is tied uh, in Christ, and the Father says it's yours, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, neither death nor life, nor principalities nor powers, that nothing, none of this can happen to you. Uh, therefore, why in the world would I want to live a righteous life? Wouldn't it seem logical and reasonable that the application of God's grace through the gospel to the life of the individual would lead them to lawlessness and not to piety and holiness? And Paul says, may it never be. And in chapter 6, he addresses the issue of the flesh, and we talked about that last week, that we are bound, that we're serving the flesh, that, that we're captivated by it, we're in bondage to it to its passions which overrule us and guide and direct us and are merciless to us. And he said that the way to overcome that is to find your union with Christ Jesus, that you're united in Christ, uh, that you are now with him and that you are dead to the flesh, that the flesh is dead, that your past uh, is now his past and, and that his righteousness is now your righteousness, uh, that there is something that has changed within you. And that you live no longer for the passions of the flesh, but by the power of the Spirit in your life. And this week he begins and he addresses now the role of the law. But quickly in the introduction, let me simply say this. There is a deep parallel between these two things. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 between the idea and the role of sin and the role of the law. In verse 1 of chapter 6 he speaks of sin. In verse 1 of chapter 7 he speaks of the law. In verse 2 of chapter 6, he says we died to sin. In verse 4 of chapter 7, he says we've also died to the law. In verse 4 of chapter 6, he says we may too live for new life. And in verse 6 of chapter 7, he says that we would serve in the new way of the Spirit. Chapter 6, he says anyone who has died is free from sin. And in chapter 7, he says that we have been released from the law. In chapter 6, he says you've been set free from sin. And in chapter Seven, he says, you've been released from the law. He draws deep parallels between the role of the flesh in the life of the believer and the role of the law in the life of the believer. Therefore, the sermon this week is going to sound somewhat familiar in its form. For what we'll look at first is the problem. And the problem within the life of the individual is that we are bound by the law. That before we come to Christ, the law has dominion over us and we're in bondage to it. Then we'll look at the solution. The solution to the problem is to be that we are freed from the law in Christ. That in our union with Christ, we are freed from the dominion and the power of the law. And then the final point that we will see is the aim or what is the end. And the aim and end of all of this is that we would bear fruit in Christ Jesus. But how is that fruit born in our life? So as we come, we first see the problem. The problem is in verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And Paul begins in that he says, you see, you're bound within the middle of that. You're, you're caught in it. You can't, by your own power, 
a break away from it, that the law was actually a good thing. But the application of this good thing to a sinful heart actually caused there to be a release of sinfulness within the life of the individual, not holiness. It's the sense in which you've heard said before of the child whose parents come to them and the child's standing and the parents say, now, Billy, sit down. And Billy refuses to sit down. And the parents said, now, Billy, I told you to sit down. And with crossed arms, Billy refuses. And finally, the parent says, now, Billy, sit down. And Billy sits down and he looks at his parents and says, I'm sitting down, but inside I want you to know I'm standing up. That's what the law does within the life of the unregenerate heart and the flesh. It says to us, okay, fine, I'll obey. I'll obey, but deep down inside, I resent you. Deep down inside, I'm going to do these things, but at the end of the day, I'm going to do them, but I'm going to do them for my own glory. I'm going to do them for my own passions, for my own end. You see, it says, and he gives an illustration about marriage. Now, be careful in this. His illustration is used uh, not to necessarily teach us about marriage, but to teach us about the role of the law within the life of the individual. He says, the problem is that you're under control of the law, just like if you're married, that you are bound and you're united one to another. And that that is a commitment that cannot be broken by anything other than death. And so Paul is saying and relating to that, just as a husband and a wife are together, and it's only the death of one spouse that frees the other spouse uh, to go on. There's obviously within Scripture other uh, parts that explain how one would be divorced, but we're not heading there, but just in this picture, he's explaining and saying, but death is the thing that frees you, that frees you to go and to be married to another. He said, and it's the same way with the law, that the only way that you can be freed from the dominion and your union to the law is to be united to someone else through death and that you have to die to the law and be united to Christ. That you have to come out from underneath its dominion and its power. And you have to come in and be united to Christ. And the problem is that we're under the control of the law. And that the control of this law bears fruit within our lives, but not a good fruit. A poisonous and a deadly fruit. And some of the passions, some of the fruit and the sinful passions, Paul explains in another letter in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. And he says this. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. For you're saying, you see, those who are under the law, those who are bound to a morality and a moralism that says somehow I can earn my way to heaven, somehow my righteousness enough, it will actually derive within them, it will produce these other things. That the flesh bears these things out. And Paul uses the language uh, in verse 5, he says, but you were living in the flesh. So what does it mean to be living in the flesh? What does it look like to be in the flesh and in living in the flesh, bearing out these fruits? Well, if you were to flip over to chapter 8, verses 7 and 9, Paul explains. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So here, the person in Romans 7, 5 is described to be in the flesh. And in chapter 8, Paul describes it this way. Four things. He says, if you're in the flesh, that the mind is set on the flesh, 
and is hostile to God. That there's a hostility to God. That there is, uh, there is an animosity between the individual and God. Uh, that we resent Him and hate Him in the midst of it. That it does not subject itself to the law of God. It refuses to put itself under subjection of the law. That it wants to be, at the end of the day, its own law and its own end. And we find that in that, it doesn't even have, the individual doesn't even have the ability to do so, to subject itself to God. And then the fourth thing is those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And you would say, oh, but Bill, there are philanthropists in the world who aren't Christians and they do great things. There are people who are Christians and they're married and they have wonderful marriages and they do great things. So you're saying they're not doing good things? I'm saying, no, they're doing wonderful things. Those are very good things. It's a good thing to be a philanthropist, to care about the needs of others, to give money to education, to give uh, pure water to those who have no water, to fight for freedom for those, to help and to give social justice to those who are marginalized. But none of those works please God unto salvation. That at the end of the day, driven deep down within, is a selfishness and a self-righteousness within each of those that actually a humanist is using another person to feel good about themselves at the end of the day, deep down. That they're gaining something. And at the end of the day, by doing something that's driven by my own desire to feel good about myself, I'm simply using you. And if you don't respond in the manner in which I want you to respond, then I begin to resent you. You see some of that probably even in your own relationships. And so he says the person who is in the flesh is something like this. One writer wrote this. Now think about this with me. The essence of our sinful condition before our conversion before we die with Christ and receive the Holy Spirit, is not that we break specific rules. That's what many of you think. That the problem that you had before you became a Christian was that you just weren't obedient to God. And that to get right with God, you just simply need to do more of this and less of that. That it's something about obedience. That it's about breaking specific laws. But the essence of our condition is that we are hostile to God. And so we do not and cannot submit to God's will, God's law, The essence of our sinful condition is the unwillingness to be told what to do. The essence of sin is a passion for self-rule. We will decide for ourselves where joy is to be found. We will not admit any final decisive power or authority above self. In short, the essence of sin is self-deification, the passion to be our own God. That is what it means to be in the flesh. And we still wrestle with that, don't you? Paul says we battle with the spirit and the flesh within us, but that is the essence of being in this flesh, that we want to rule. We hate to be ruled. Our entire country was predicated upon self-rule, that we didn't want a monarch, that we didn't want a king, that we wanted to be able to do things our way. And we hold very dearly to that even now as individuals. And we hate to be ruled. And you are presented with the gospel. And some of you are hearing it today and you're going, I oppose this God because he wants to take control of my life. And the answer is, yes, he does. Yes, he does. And it is a frontal, full-on assault of self-rule. But living in the flesh is standing there. You see, sin is not first law-breaking. It is first law-hating. You hate the law. We hate being ruled. And from that comes our breaking. 
The breaking doesn't cause our hearts to be evil. It's the heart that is in rebellion against God that leads it to break the rules. The problem with your children, parents, and I'm a parent, by the way, and the problem with my kids isn't that they break the rules. It's their hearts. And that the role of the parent is to pursue the heart of their children. Is to go after it because you know what? And some of you are brand new parents. When you hold that little bitty child, you know what that little bitty child wants? Her own way. On her time. On his time. You don't believe me? We'll have a little experiment outside afterwards. We've got one toy. And we're going to stick six 18-month-olds with one toy. And you know what you're going to see? Oh, no, I would really love for you to have the toy. I would like for your needs to be met over and against my needs. I have plenty of toys at home, and I've played with them enough today. No, you, please enjoy. What are you going to see? A free-for-all of selfish, sinful hearts going after one toy at every expense. There will be carnage in there. There will be tears. And then, guess what you're going to find out about parents? You have the same hearts. How come your kid took my child's toy? What kind of kid do you have? Oh my goodness, you can't play with my kid anymore. My kid's not playing with your kid anymore. Because you want what you want, when you want it, how you want it. And you talk to a teenager who says, well, why can't I have premarital sex? What do you mean I have to wait uh, until I'm married for this? I want it now. Are you willing to submit yourself to God and to believe that he has an authority over you and that it's the best thing? Or for the individual who says, what do you mean this? You see, sin is not first law breaking, it's first law hating. And even before that, it is self-rule loving. That being in the flesh means that we will not be told what to do, we will be our own God. So what's the solution to it? So how do we get from that, being in that dominion, to coming in and finding freedom? The solution is very simple, but yet incredibly profound. You have to be united to Christ. You have to be married to another. You have to find yourself dead to that. And you have to see Christ as beautiful uh, and as uh, your bridegroom. Men, I know that's difficult, but as this groom, as this one in whom you are now looking and going, I am united with that one. And that my life is found in him. And that he is now the one for whom I live. That likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So how do we break the bondage of the law? You have to die to the law and belong to another. That is not self-rule. It's not autonomy, but it's shifting allegiance. It's shifting up under and uniting and being united to another. There is no list of commandments. This is no external slate of duties. This is a spiritual union, as John Piper says, a spiritual union with an all-glorious, all-providing, all-satisfying, ever-living person more real than the person sitting next to you. That now you are free to obey the law, that it becomes beautiful to you 
Brother Bacall becomes something that you desire to keep, not something that you have to keep and resent. That God has moved from Luther's uh, relentless slave master to that of a beautiful spouse in whom you find life. The motivation is generated from gratitude and thankfulness to God and a desire to do those things which God desires. I love doing weddings. I wish we had more weddings here at our church and I hope that over the course of time we have more. But I love that I get to stand right here and the groom is right here. And you know what the groom's doing? He's looking. He's trying to see his bride. He hadn't seen her all day. And the door is open. And she's dressed in magnificent white. And there's no such thing as an ugly bride. They're beautiful and adorned. And that groom is sitting there. And in his mind, he's thinking, I can't wait to get home and drop her off and go out with the boys. I can't wait to do whatever the heck I want to do for the rest of my life and know that my clothes are going to get done. I can't wait to just remain just as I am at this moment. They never say that. They're never thinking that. You know what they're thinking? How am I going to love this woman well for the rest of our lives together? What are her deepest needs and wants? What are her deepest passions? What are the things that make her come alive more than anything else? And how can I meet those needs? How can I die to the things that I'm passionate about in order to live for the things that she's passionate about? And you know what she's thinking? The same thing. That's what Paul is talking about. He says what happens in this incredible union with Christ is all of a sudden you are so magnificently changed and you're married to Him in such a way that you look at the Father and you go, what is it that makes you delight? I have no other gods before you? Okay. Make no graven images and serve them? Take out your name lightly? Got it. Honor you one day out of seven? I got that. Honor your father and mother and the authorities placed in your life. Fine, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't murder, don't, don't commit adultery, don't covet. I got it. Because you see, those are beautiful to me because you're beautiful to me. And when I realized the blood-bought life that's been given to me, then all of a sudden these things that seemed so burdensome to me before when brought to me in the presence of this Savior with His nail-scarred hands and His feet. And He looks at me and He says, this was all done at great cost for you. And my response to Him is never, man, you're a burden. But it is always, what brings delight to my Savior? You want me to go over there and serve there? I'll go do that. You want me to stay faithful here? I'll do that. You want me to not do this or you want me to do that? Oh, you mean there is external stuff? Yeah, but it's generated from a heart that now is united to Christ. A heart that's married to the Savior. And folks, a word of warning. 
if you don't see within your heart those desires to honor the Lord and to love what He loves, if you don't see them in your heart, be very concerned. Pause for a moment, for that is not a good thing. For the life of the believer, a true one who has been changed and transformed and is being transformed day by day into His image, is one who finds a deeper love of the things that God loves, not a deeper resentment of them. And so if you say that I've been walking with Christ my whole life, but this is just who I am, what do you mean God wants me to forgive that person? What do you mean God wants me? I'm not doing that. Pause. For there comes a question of have you met the Savior truly in that way? This blood-bought meal and life that He offers you. And quickly, we know what the problem is, that we are under dominion of the law, but now we find the solution is that we are freed from the law in Christ, that Christ perfectly obeyed the law on our behalf, its demands are fully absorbed in Him, and that we can stand now perfect and righteous in His, uh, in his sight, that we understand that and live that, and now the final thing is, okay, so what do we do with that? What's the goal? What's the aim of all of this stuff? It means, okay, I got it. That means I can go out and live however I want to live. Paul was saying, may it never be. The aim of all of this, he says, is likewise, my brothers, you've died to the law through the body of Christ so that you now belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So you have to aim at something. Something's got to change. And it is to see in your life a new way of the Spirit. A new way of the Spirit. I was challenged this week by someone to make sure that I highlight this reality. That it's not by your effort. Some of you are hearing, okay, now i just got to get busier for God. No, it's that you've got to beg God and call upon the Spirit to generate within you these passions, these desires for Him to see more love, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. But those are generated by the Spirit within you. And if you're not seeing them within you, then cry out to the Lord that the Spirit would be poured out in your life and you'd see them more born out in your life. That it's a Spirit-cultivated fruit within your life. And that the Christian sees these fruits in his or her life. That it's noticeable to those who are around. I was hanging out with my buddies this weekend, a bunch of my old fraternity brothers. Interesting, most of them profess Christ now. Would have never thought it 25 years ago or more. I was sitting with one of them. And it's like, tell me about your relationship with Christ. He said, I was coming back from the Wharton School of Business the other day, and I was riding on a train with a guy who's an MIT grad and works on Wall Street. And he said, I was on the train with him, and this guy is a professed atheist. He can't stand anything about organized religion, be it Christian or otherwise. But we're sitting on the train, and we're riding on the train. And he looks at me, and he says, hey, is this Jesus guy the reason for your happiness? My friend paused and said, what? He goes, is this Jesus person the reason for your happiness in life? And my friend was able to say, I'm not sure your definition of happiness, but I can tell you this, that this Jesus guy is my absolute center and the center of my life and my contentment is in him 
And this friend of mine has had surgery and has lost, uh, because of a tumor, all of his hearing in his right ear. It's caused within him cluster headaches that are so debilitating for four months out of the year that he can barely get out of bed. That he wrestles as a man to love his wife well and to raise his daughters well. That he's gone through all of the ups and downs of the financial institutions and some losing their jobs and the thought of him, him losing his job and all of that. But yet there was something so distinctively different about my friend because of the work of Jesus Christ that it caused an atheist to ask him about it. Has anybody ever asked you that? Does anybody in the world even notice that Jesus Christ is your husband, is your spouse, and you are united with him in such a way that your life is so profoundly changed that you're different? If no one notices the change, has there been any change at all? If no one notices, pause and cry out to the Spirit. Don't try harder. Cry harder to the Spirit to fill you and to flow out of you. And keep looking back to this tape that we come to today. That Christ says, I bought your salvation with my own life. Now live in the freedom of it. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to this table. We ask that you would bless us. That you would encourage us. That Father, we would see and that we would be profoundly changed. Not because there's some magic in this table, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit which is working through these moments. And that you would apply to our lives the truth of the gospel. Would you set aside now this bread and this cup from its common and ordinary use, to this its sacred use? Would you bless us as we come to this table? 